Welcome to the Non-Servium Podcast, a project dedicated to exploring the world of anarchist and anti-authoritarian ideas. Join us in our conversations with radical voices in precarious times. To find future episodes, make sure to subscribe on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other places where podcasts are found. If you'd like to become a contributing member of the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash media. Every little bit counts, and we appreciate all the support we can get. Remember to like, share, and subscribe to help spread the word, and so you can stay updated with our most recent episodes. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to the Non-Servium Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Williamson, and today we have on Jack Shimmick as a guest. Jack is a self-described agorist who has been doing activism in the left libertarian world for decades. He organizes a biannual event called Alternative Exposition, or Alt-Expo for short, which hosts a variety of speakers interested in creating non-coercive alternative institutions in all areas of life. He was a friend of the late Samuel Edward Conkin III and has a long history of involvement within the New Libertarian Movement. Jack, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joel. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Long time no talk. How are you doing? Oh, doing well. It's, uh, it's late May in New Hampshire, and I think it's going to warm up soon. <laughs> it's, uh, our climate's a lot different than yours. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, it was raining for a long time over here, but it's finally gotten hot and uh, it's getting pretty steamy outside. Oh, uh, there you go. And you know, I know a lot about Austin because I went to college there. So I forgot about that. Yeah, I went to the University of Texas, the university we used to call it. Cool. So, Jack, you were really helpful when I started to learn about agorism, and I hope that this conversation will help others learn more about it as well. But before we get into the interview, let's address the elephant in the room. Is it pronounced agorism or agorism? Uh, I'm glad you asked. First of all, I don't really care because I just want people to uh, believe in the philosophy. But I'll tell you why there's two pronunciations. As as best I know, this is the reason. So Sam Konkin called it agorism. So I I spell that as agorism, like Al Gore. And, uh, you know, he had come up with this word, the agora. He was, he was trying to refine some libertarian thinking and all that. But anyway, uh, J. Neil Shulman, or Neil Shulman, hung around with him a lot. And Neil was a real nitpicker for pronunciation. And he argued long and hard that it's supposed to be agorism. And he had some pronunciation rule, whatever. So I didn't hang around with Neil as much. I did hang around with Sam so I always heard it pronounced agorism. Okay, so how did you get caught up in the new libertarian, anarchist, and agorist world? I got interested in anything libertarian uh, in college. So that would be about like 1970 or so. And there was this guy that sat next to me in my history class, and he turned me on to objectivism. And then a couple of years later, this would be like, about 72, my brother told me about the Libertarian Party because there was a presidential campaign then. And I says, oh, man, it's happening. You know, there's a way for us to do something. So I registered to vote for the first time and I voted for John Hospers and Tony Nathan, the Libertarian Party's first presidential and vice presidential candidate. I was reading all the newsletters and Reason magazine and things like that. And I was all excited about this. And I actually put a 
a um, let's see, what's it called? Not a help wanted. The opposite of a help wanted. Where where I said I'm available. I'm a mechanical engineer, uh, libertarian, looking for work. And so Reason Magazine used to have on the back cover kind of some classified ads. And I got a, an offer from a company in Pennsylvania that were a bunch of objectivists. And I figured, oh, cool, libertarians, objectivists, whatever. So I went to work there, and I was about four hours away from New York City. So I'd go to New York City on the weekends, not every weekend, but a lot. And there was the laissez-faire bookstore, a real brick-and-mortar bookstore. And I would I would go hang out there because I was all excited about this libertarianism. And I'd, I'd buy like one book and you know, spend the rest of the day hanging around in there. And one day I was in there and there was a debate going on in the back room. And there was this guy, Samuel Edward Conkin III, was debating Gary Greenberg. So Gary Greenberg was a lawyer and he was the new chairman of the Free Libertarian Party of New York. And, you know, I ducked into the back room of the bookstore and I listened in. And so Conkin's got this radical libertarianism. That's kind of what they called it back then. And he was arguing against the Libertarian Party. And it was like, wait, how could anybody be against the Libertarian Party? You know, they're for freedom, right? So we got to talking more. And then he told me uh, there was an event coming up called uh, CounterCon. And he was just beginning to coin, coin this term, agorism, into usage. And then, you know, because I came to New York so often, I finally I got his number, looked him up, and... You know, I just basically wanted to hang out with the guy and and talk some more. And so sure enough, I would essentially go along with him when he ran his errands during the day. And so I had all these questions, you know, and I came from this objectivist viewpoint. He was gentle enough when he was correcting me or or pointing out some flaws in the thinking or whatever that it was that it was fine. I, I, I didn't take too much offense. I was just really curious. So because I, I got to know him personally, and I actually ended up staying at his, uh, his New York pad uh, one time, I really started getting a real feel for what he was about. And then I went to CounterCon 2. There was a second one about, I think it was like nine months later. That would be 75. And, you know, read various articles. So now I had a good handle on what what he meant by agorism. Because it took a while, you know, when you're when you're all absorbed in the political party thinking, you think that's the only way you can do things. That's the only way you can change the world, you know. So he moved away to California in 75, and I kind of lost touch for a while because back then you had to actually write a letter to somebody and put it in an envelope and put a stamp on it and address it. And maybe two weeks later, you'd get, <laughs> you'd get a reply. And uh, I guess I got a letter from him or something telling me he had this book coming out, The New Libertarian Manifesto. And it turns out when the Internet started becoming really a, a tool for the common man, you know, I had a AOL account and he and I hooked up on AOL Instant Messenger. And then we stayed in touch all the time after that. You know, every day, sometimes a couple of times a day, we'd have a session. So that's all the backstory. That's how I got involved. It was like just a couple of different chance meetings, you know, and being at the right place at the right time. Uh, I stumbled on agorism. Okay, and you said that he was critical of the Libertarian Party. What do you think that is, and what did he propose as a solution instead? So here's the important history uh, pieces to understand. He kind of you know, marks the starting point of the Libertarian Movement. The modern Libertarian Movement is 1969. And back then, all the ideas flew around in various little newsletters. So the, the 
libertarian concepts were were out there, you know, and some people were reading Rothbard. Rothbard had a, a newsletter called Libertarian Forum, which I subscribed to for a while. And then he actually had one before that called Left and Right. So there was actually a libertarian movement before the Libertarian Party. And the discussion was, or the arguments and the the struggle was, okay, what's, you know, we believe in this philosophy and we believe that we should, you know, not initiate force against anyone, but what's the best way to make a society where that's the predominant way of behaving? So there were some people that were kind of survivalists. They wanted to go out in uh, the boonies and there was other people that wanted to uh, form a colony and take over an island in the Bahamas. And there was people that wanted to have a colony on an oil platform in the North Sea and various different other concepts. And early in 71, somebody in California started a uh, libertarian party as a joke because, ha, 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 everybody knew that that was a complete contradiction, you know, with our basic principles. So they were they were doing it just so they could get a few lines in the newspaper, you know. And uh, that was early in 71. And the joke was kind of over, and and that operation folded. But late in 71, uh, David and Susan Nolan started a party from their apartment in, uh, see, was it Evergreen, Colorado? It was Colorado, I think in the Denver area. And <clears throat> that's the Libertarian Party that exists today. And Konkin kind of said, well, yeah, that's, that's another funny joke, but uh, let's don't do this. And they said, no, no, we're serious. And he says, no, wait, you can't do that. You'll ruin the whole movement. And so the debate that I went to, which would probably be in, like I said, 74 or so, was Gary Greenberg. And he was the chair of the Free Libertarian Party of New York. And he was making the same argument that David Nolan did. And like Gary Greenberg, you know, proclaimed himself as an anarchist, I believe. Uh, But he was saying, well, no, we're going to do this to get publicity. We're going to do it for educational purposes. And that's essentially what David Nolan had said uh, with the 1971 national, what became the National Libertarian Party. And so I remember this one thing really distinctly. Konkin had to answer that question. Well, why wouldn't we start a, a political party? And he says, we're trying to you know, get rid of the state, not you know, improve the state or get control of the state. And people said, yeah, but if we're just doing it for educational purposes. And this is what he said. He said, well, you would be educating people to the wrong thing. You're an intelligent person. You're giving all the reasons why people shouldn't aggress on each other. And here you are joining an aggressive institution or advocating uh, aggressing by majoritarian voting to get control of the state apparatus. He just says, hey, you're teaching the wrong lesson. Later on, he was able to elaborate more. But that's the thing I I took away from that debate with Gary Greenberg. Okay, and can you give a succinct definition of agorism? Agorism is libertarian in theory and free market in practice. If you believe in these libertarian principles, if you stay consistent, you're practicing agorism. But if you drop back into voting and running for office and uh, anything like that, anything having to do with electoral politics, then you're committing anti-libertarian acts. You're doing things that recognize the state, grant authority to the state, give it fuel, you know, give it uh, life by just being part of the state process, you know, the democratic state process we have now. We have to get to freedom using only market actions in order to be consistent with our libertarian beliefs. And that's what uh, Konkin lays out in the New Libertarian Manifesto and then in a lot of the other discussions and writings and articles of his. 
Right. And he, in my opinion, he was a part of the libertarian movement that was more in line with sort of the individualist anarchist tradition, along with Robert Anton Wilson and Carl Hess. And the end that they sought wasn't only anti-state, but it was also against the formal economy or against the capitalist economy. And one way to undermine that, that Conkern promoted, was counter-economics. Can you give yeah. me a definition or can you explain to the audience what counter-economics is? The mainstream economy, uh, the big corporations and everything, they exist because of distortions in the marketplace created by the state. And the state is a combination of the really wealthy and the governmental institutions. It's kind of like this hand-in-glove relationship where through you know, political contributions, help people get elected, that'll help them pass laws, that'll help give them monopolies or you know, privileged cartel situation in the economy, and turn the rest of us into essentially you know, wage slaves for the, for the man, for the big corporations. This is what Konkin did with words, which was really fun. He would say, that's the capital E economy. He says, but there's a counter economy, just like there was a counter culture back then. Those of us who don't follow along in the standard mainstream economy and do our own thing and figure out how to make money our way, we're in the counter economy. So the counter economy is all those uh, acts in the economy that where you don't necessarily have permission from the state, and you're not necessarily doing it by the way that they've strictly prescribed for you. It's, it's the real free economy. And in the early days, the counter economy will be a, a smaller part of the economy. And there are people that are, there's a bunch of people that are already in the counter economy. We didn't have to convince them that it was philosophically the right thing to do, or that that was the way for us to become free. But there's a flea market around here. There's several flea markets, and the flea markets are really interesting in that way. One flea market that's close to the Massachusetts border, there's, I don't know, like 80% of the vendors there are Hispanic. And it's, it looks like a, a more traditional economy for people. You know, they'll have these markets, and it'll be a hodgepodge of things, but, you know, they'll have just almost everything in this flea market kind of environment. So they're actually in the counter economy. They're not Walmart. <laughs> but the other counter economy is whatever counter economy you create, whatever service you come up with that you want to offer to people and you market it your way. And this doesn't have to be like some people think, oh, the counter economy, that's where you uh, you sell drugs and stuff. And no, drugs is just one product. I mean, what about selling apples or pears or potatoes or, you know, anything like that? And you just do it on your own, independent of of the mainstream system and of the tax and regulation system and the, all the things that favor the big guys, the Walmarts of the world. Okay, so the idea then is if we are trying to achieve market ends, then we ought use market means. And exactly. by that, he doesn't mean capitalist market means or the formal economy, but he means the counter economy. How does counter economics as opposed to voting actually move us from here to there? If you were going to take the voting approach and you wanted to get rid of a monopoly enterprise so there could be a free market, you know, you'd have to start spreading the ideas. You'd have to recruit a bunch of people for your, your campaign, your candidacy, and you'd have to run for office and do all the things that you do to run for office to try to change the law. And then, OK, so you don't get elected. So you try to do it again two years later. Up here, they, they elect state reps every two years. And then finally, after like six years, three tries at it, maybe you, you get elected, but you're the only guy in the state legislature. Now you got to like convince a bunch of other people. And I'm up in New Hampshire and the New Hampshire legislature has like 400 members in the House. 
So maybe you've got to get 201 members to vote your way. So what you're talking about is, you know, like a 20-year time frame to maybe change any particular law. And the good thing about direct action in the counter economy is you can do things differently today. You know, like I grew up in the day where there was only one phone company. It was AT&T. And the only re- the reason there was only one phone company was because back in the 20s, there were more phone companies and J.P. Morgan was, you know, the the banker behind AT&T. And he convinced the Congress that, yeah, there should only be one phone company. You know, all this competition is wasteful. Let's just go with my phone company. And you you didn't have the innovation you would have had in a competitive market, you know. And when I was growing up, we only had dial phones. They were all black. There weren't even color phones. And they were hardwired to the wall. And you couldn't even own the phone. You had to pay a, a lease payment every month. And so given that that's the model of the, the capitalists that run the mainstream economy, by building up to the agora, the, the free marketplace, by each of us being a contributor to the marketplace and, and develop enough prosperity from that, then when we come under any kind of uh, attack, we can actually, as a marketplace service, we can have a way of dealing with security and, and problems like that and dispute resolution. Can you explain what Konkin meant when he made the distinctions between the white market, the gray market, and the black market? The white market is like everybody that stays between the lines. You know, there are people that, you know, follow all the rules and follow all the regulations, pay all the taxes and, you know, keep to all the strict, essentially the the controls on the marketplace. And then, of course, the black market is buying and selling things that themselves might be illegal and doing it in a way that's completely not visible to the to the mainstream, to the tax tax and regulators. And, uh, you know, the gray market would be, you know, buying and selling something that wasn't itself illegal, but you're not necessarily doing it by the uh, by the book. How does agorism differ from anarcho-capitalism? I know it's built largely upon a lot of Murray Rothbard's ideas, but I also know that Konkin parted ways in some pretty significant areas. And I was just wondering if you could touch on that. Like I said, I grew up intellectually uh, learning about any of these freedom ideas from this friend who was an Ayn Rand fan. And so Ayn Rand used the word capitalism to be the same as free market. It turns out, though, that the guy that kind of coined the word capitalism was an early libertarian. Now, they didn't use that word then. He was an English liberal named Thomas Hodgkin. And what it really meant was a capitalist was somebody, they were land barons. They were wealthy because of the land. But as money uh, came more into use and people began to master how to use capital, and this would include the central banker types. They would be the ultimate capitalists. They would use their money to influence the state. In England, it would be the parliament to get things written their way. You know, like they would get these oppressive labor laws written so that they could put their capital to better use in the factories without these pesky workers, you know, demanding anything decent. You know, like the terminology that uh, Adam Smith used was, this won't be a direct quote, but he said, whenever two or more businessmen get together, they conspire to figure out how they can restrain trade so that, you know, they can keep their profits higher. So capitalists were the ones that were against competition. They They were the ones that were not in favor of a free economy. Capitalism is the situation where the people with capital try to restrain free trade. So the anarchist movement was inherently anti-capitalist 
that doesn't mean they were anti-freedom. They were against the, the fat cat capitalists controlling the whole economy by using the power of the state. So the word anarcho-capitalism was actually this horrible self-contradicting term, but it really caught on amongst all the Ayn Rand followers. They started calling themselves anarcho-capitalists, and they sort of adopted uh, some of the bad features of Ayn Rand's philosophy, and they didn't come to pure libertarianism from a good origin, I guess I'd say. And then anarcho-capitalists go off on a bunch of other bad tangents, I think. I'm sorry I probably didn't cover that well, but I thought the historical note was important. Also, like, despite the etymology of the word capitalism, I mean, the majority of the history of the word capitalism has been associated as something that's opposed to markets. Or it might be defined as a market, but a captured market and not a free market. I've read that other people have used the word capitalism before Thomas Hodgkin, but that's kind of just beside the point. Like, it doesn't matter who coined the term. It matters how the majority have used it throughout history and also how the majority of people use it now. I think it's most consistent to call captured economies capitalism. They stand apart from actually freed markets. And also, you can point out that when's the last time you heard an NCAP criticize wage labor? You know, Konkin pointed out in the midst of the Rothbardians and everything that wage labor was a holdover from feudalism. Right. He wanted to evolve past the formal economy and the wage system that it promoted. And furthermore, he said that if you were in the formal economy as a worker, you ought be wobbly. You ought be IWW. When's the last time you heard an ANCAP say anything like that? You know, the thing about the corporate system being like feudalism, the fact that it's hierarchical, there's a lord at the top, you know, the president, and then there's all these sublords, you know, vice presidents and department managers and all that. And, you know, the workers way down at the bottom and he's completely dependent on their whim for how he's treated that day. Right. Konkin, he sort of wasn't a property reductionist in his outlook. You know, he's noted for saying a lot more than the state would have to be overcome in order to reach a free society. And he also saw allying with different cultural causes like feminism to be beneficial as a more robust way of approaching what freedom means. And in my experience, that's often missing missing within anarcho-capitalism. But why don't we kind of move on from that a little bit? Sure. Sure. So he's responsible for coining a few different terms that people still use to this day. Let the audience know what some of those terms are and what they mean. Well, first of all, uh, agora or agorism. Actually, if somebody has a copy of the New Libertarian Manifesto 25th Anniversary Edition, page 31, he says, Some hallmarks of this society, libertarian in theory, and free market in practice called agorist, from the Greek agora, meaning open marketplace. And he says we would have rapid innovation in science, technology, communication, transportation, production, and distribution, blah, blah, blah. So the first counterattack on the libertarians came from anti-principles. And so anti-principles were uh, something that held a contradiction within them. So minarchism was one of those anti-principles. And that stood for minimum minimum government, you know. So that comes from monarchist, but but minimum, so minarchist. And so Konkin coined that term. And some of the other terms he talks about in this section, where he was talking about the anti principles, I think they already exist. There was defeatism, retreatism, collaborationism, 
gradualism, monocentrism, and reformism. So reformism is, you know, like your constitutional conservative position where you say, let's just get in government and we, we can improve it. We can make it a little better. We can reform it. But anyway, he said the worst of all these anti-concepts was partyarchy. So that meant pursuing libertarian ends through statist means, especially political parties. So a libertarian party was what partyarchs would do. That term didn't stick that well, but minarchist, I've heard it over and over again. By the way, let me mention here, I have this uh, idea for a project, a new libertarian project, and I call it the new libertarian lexicon. And what I was going to try to do is to take all these words that sort of mean something different to new libertarians than to anybody else, or that they're words that Konkin or other people coined. So I wanted to create a little lexicon. These are words that new libertarians tend to use. And if you can understand those words, then we can have a, a conversation that makes sense, you know. Have you coined any terms yourself? Some of the things I coined were kind of to recognize some issues with, you know, Ayn Rand's objectivism. So she had these loner type heroes, you know, like uh, Howard Roark was like lived alone and, and, you know, he had to have things his way. You know, that was the thing. And so what, what ended up happening then it, with her followers, they tended to mimic characters and they were real loners. And I probably was a little bit that way myself. And eventually I ended up getting married and, and having a kid. And one time I was talking to Sam and, and I said, hey, uh, geez, I've got a, a little baby girl now. And he says, oh, wow. He says, objectivists don't usually reproduce. <laughs> <laughs> so I came up with the term toxic individualism, where you took this good concept of individualism, being able to make up your own mind, and you know, distorting it and twisting it and exaggerating it to the point where you really are toxic with other people and toxic in relationships. And, and I, I've seen that a lot, I'm sorry to say. Yeah, or like an, an atomized or like American conformist version of individualism. Yeah. The main thing, though, is that you, you can't seem to form effective relationships. So, yeah, that's, that's no good. Yeah. No fun. No fun. So another term... Ayn Rand had a kind of perfectionism. Murray Rothbard wrote an essay about this. He called it the cult of objectivism. And he talked about how, and I noticed this a lot, where you, you had to be 100% perfectly in agreement with Ayn Rand, or they would tend to throw you out of the movement, you know. And so I came up with a word for that. I call it intellectual perfectionism. And there would be nothing wrong with somebody being intellectually perfect. But what, it, what this really meant was, again, in order to uh, be friends with somebody or to be an ally with them in any kind of action, insisting that they be 100 percent in agreement with you or else they're banished. You know, they can't be your friend at all. So what that did to Ayn Rand's movement, she started purging people from her movement or excommunicating them because they weren't perfect anymore. And of course, the thing you want to do in a movement is keep adding more people. You don't want to be subtracting people. That behavior was self-destructive to her uh, her movement. Here's a couple other terms. So when people get involved in political activism and they spend all their time, money, and energy trying to get elected, and essentially all their time, money, and energy gets frittered away and they don't get elected. So I call that hamster wheel activism, where you get on the essentially the hamster wheel, you know, and you expend all your energies spinning this hamster wheel around and around and around and you get all this this illusion of doing something and you feel good because you're doing something 
and then you take a break and you get off the hamster wheel and you're right back where you started. And I think that's kind of what happens with most of the energies put into, you know, Libertarian Party candidates and things like that. You know, we've used the word a few times now, but we haven't yet defined what new libertarianism is. So can you give a definition of that so the audience knows what exactly we're talking about? Like, why did Konkin decide to call it new libertarianism as opposed to just standard libertarianism? So here's here's the backstory. Here's the history. When Sam was in college, first he went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and he's a pretty smart guy. You'd think, okay, this guy's a, a philosophy major or an economist or something. No, he was a theoretical chemist. So he went to New York University in Manhattan, New York. So he was working on a degree in theoretical chemistry, a PhD. And in the uh, student protest movement, there was, they called the movement the New Left. And so there was a newsletter then called New, New Left Notes. And so he thought he would start a newsletter in opposition to them, and he called it NYU, New York University, Libertarian Notes. And eventually he just said, hmm, what the heck, I'll just change it to New Libertarian Notes. So he actually used the term first before he came up with agorism, but he adopted the New Libertarian name to mean essentially the practice of agorism. But basically, that's what it means. A new libertarian is an agorist. You've described new libertarianism as an open system. What do you mean by this? I would say that if you take the fundamental piece that is agorism, and that is philosophy that's libertarian and actions that are free market, you could come up with a lot of different systems, things that Konkin didn't even think of, maybe. And in that way, the agorism or new libertarianism is open. And, you know, we don't have any cops <laughs> that, that are going to bust you for, <laughs> for being wrong about agorism, because there's some people out there that, that call something agorist when I don't really think it is. But, you know, I'm not going to scold them or something. What difficulties did Konkin face trying to convince the early libertarian movement of agorism? Well, okay, so I was a, an observer to some of this. You know, like I said, I went to the laissez-faire bookstore, and there was some people that kind of agreed with Konkin in principle. And I swear this, um, there's a certain lure to politics. It's like you get involved and it's like crack cocaine or something. Like you want to do it more and more and more. And you get convinced, this time we're going to win. <laughs> you know. And I saw that with, with Ron Paul. And, you know, and Ron Paul originally ran on the Libertarian Party ticket in like 78 or something. Konkin's difficulties were, number one, the lure of politics. Um, but the other thing was, you know, he was pretty uncompromising in his position once he took it. And so I think I think some people might have gotten taken aback because he stood firm on his position. And so they would think, well, you're just being negative, you know. And then the laissez-faire bookstore itself, when he finally printed the New Libertarian Manifesto, he had since moved away and was living in California. But I understand that they wouldn't even carry his book. And I'm not exactly sure why. I'd have to check back with uh, John Muller was the guy that ran the store, and Sharon Presley was his girlfriend early on there. And uh, he was also kind of dogged by the, by his own consistency. He was a Canadian national. He's from Alberta. Isn't he? Isn't he a, an illegal immigrant also? Yeah. So he had come here. He probably overstayed his visa. And by the way, the biggest the biggest quantity of illegal immigrants in the U.S. I think is Canadians. It's damn Canadians and their maple syrup trying to change our culture. 
yeah, trying to tell us what we can put on our pancakes. So anyway, he stayed outside of the system. He was consistent with his counter-economic practices. But what that meant was he had a hard time getting a real job, which really forced him to be in the counter-economy. But it was tough, you know. And I don't know if I ever told you this, but, you know, here he is, this guy that's working on his Ph.D. in theoretical chemistry. And he dropped out of that at one point, not because he couldn't hack it, but because he saw that the things he was developing and the professor that he was working under, this was real useful in, in making atomic bombs. And he actually just didn't want to he didn't want to help that. So in the meantime, he'd been creating libertarian newsletters and stuff like that. And somewhere along the way, he was always trying to make the newsletter look a little better because back then everybody was, you know, typing on these mimeograph sheets. And, you know, you got to realize some of this stuff is like before Xerox machines were even common. So somewhere along the way, uh, I don't know exactly when, but he got a job at a typesetter because he wanted a way to, to typeset his newsletters and, you know, to raise the quality of the appearance of those. So he would do typesetting for um, advertisement copy. And I think at one point he was telling me he was doing typesetting for some porn magazine or something. And so that was something he did. That was his hustle uh, to make a living. But he was kind of chronically broke because he's, you know, he's putting his real energies in and spending all this time in getting together articles for the next edition of the newsletter. And, uh, and when I say newsletter, New Libertarian Notes was like a small magazine uh, after a while. You know, at first it was like the typical newsletter where it was a few sheets of paper that were mimeographed and they were stapled in the upper left-hand corner, you know. But after a while, New Libertarian Notes looked pretty decent. So being, being broke like that, he essentially had to work and have patrons. And uh, once he moved to California and PayPal became a thing, every once in a while I'd PayPal him some money. And, and I know Neil Shulman uh, helped financially support him. And again, he because he was, uh, like you say, an illegal immigrant, I hate to even use that term, but no, I just, I, I just, I just say it to be precise. I mean, he's a migrant, but under, you know, they they would call him an illegal immigrant. They would somebody who didn't have the paperwork they wanted. People exactly. To. So he didn't, he didn't ever get a driver's license in the U.S. You know, when you're in New York, you can, you, of course, you can walk and take a taxi, take the subway, take the bus, and you can get anywhere. But then, you know, he ends up in Los Angeles, which doesn't have that kind of system. But sure enough, though, he figured out the bus system and he was able to go, you know, great distances by the bus system. But you had to be pretty precise because sometimes the bus would only run once every two hours or something like that. I mean, a lot of people appreciated him, but somehow it never turned into a real financial reward. And so he was always struggling uh, getting the money together to pay the printer for the next copy of the newsletter. So are and, you saying that this is one of the reasons why he may have had a hard time convincing the libertarian movement of agorism? Well, yeah, I guess, you know, the biggest part of it was the fact that the, the conservative reformers overwhelmed the movement and the, the real radical libertarianism just just got shouted out, shouted down, overtalked. No, I hear that. I mean, it's one thing to convince someone of anarchism. It's another thing to convince them the way in which we get there. And it's, yeah. it's a whole nother hurdle to jump over because people, they learn that the institutions that they grow up with have always been there. So, you know, psychologically, they just rationalize it. it it's been modeled to them that the democratic process, the electoral process is the way that you get things done. Like not only is the state and the, the economic systems that grow out of it unnecessary, but the ways that we move beyond that is also important. And it's likely not going to be the prescribed modes for change. 
Right. If you stay between the lines and use only the methods that they say you should use, you never get there because they're going to tell you to use processes that essentially they control. What schools of anarchist thought do you think agorism is most compatible with? Well, you know, Voltaire Declare, she always talked about anarchism without adjectives. If you've gotten rid of the the restrictions and the control imposed on you by the state, you can pursue all kinds of varieties of things. If you don't have state restrictions, you can try this, you can try that, you can try all these different arrangements, and we'll be free then to actually find the ones that really work. I don't know if that helps at all. I, that's not specific to any you know like existing anarchist schools of thought. It's anarchism without adjectives. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I, I kind of jokingly call myself an anarchist with and without adjectives, or an individualist anarchist with and without adjectives. And, oh, with uh, and without? <laughs> yeah, because why not? It's fun. But I think, I mean, I think clearly mutualism is compatible with agorism and is a lot closer to Konkin's view of how economic exchange would happen as opposed to the anarcho-capitalist conception of it. But you might even be able to stretch that a little bit and while there's clearly some serious differences between market anarchists and syndicalists, given that Konkin supported unionization if you were a worker within the white market, I think that it's possible that like even some syndicalists could find some value within it. The stuff I know about mutualism I like. I like Kevin Carson. I believe in, you know, if you're going to use anything in the banking system, uh, you know, use a credit union. Well, that's actually kind of a mutualist concept. And right now I organize with some uh, some of my fellow libertarians here, a, a, a food cooperative. So I've heard some people describe agorism as market illegalism. Where do you think agorism and illegalism intersect and how might they differ? Well, you know, like if the intention of illegalism is to just break laws for the heck of it or I mean, obviously, if you're you're trying to have a free economy within a society where somebody else is trying to impose a regulated society or a regulated economy, you're going to be ignoring their system at best and going around it. Um, and so, you know, that might be considered illegal. That, like the real goal of, of gorism is to build a better society. The system we have is so corrupted, it, it makes shoddy products and it excludes people from the workplace that should be able to get in or, or excludes people from starting businesses. It's got so many negatives to it. If we create better alternatives, we're going to shine. You know, We're going to really excel and produce. We won't have to go around breaking things. The things are already broken. And our goal is to, in the marketplace, by interacting peacefully with people, create something that's more desirable, that people will be drawn to. Like, for example, you take the app Waze, and Waze has got that feature where you can identify where, where the cops are, and the cops just hate Waze because of that. But I can imagine a system where the counter-economists, you know, have a, an app on their smartphone where they can tell where all the enforcers are so they can just close up shop. There's places in the world where it's actually way freer than it is here because more people do that all the time. I wanted to pose a challenge to agorism. Agorism is supposed to bleed the state dry, right? So what's the point of tax evasion if the Fed can just print money? So you're in this context, you know, where, you know, ideally you would create your own, your own money system, which, of course, is happening now with Bitcoin and other cryptos. I don't really look at the 
agorist goal to bleed the state dry. The state, it provides such, you know, essentially horrible, shoddy products that what we're trying to do is create better products and ignore them. There's all these other alternatives. Like if we found the, the alternatives we really liked in all those areas, all those systems we interact with, pretty soon we'd, we'd have all the bases covered and we wouldn't need any of the state-provided services anymore. Okay, so are you saying that the, the point isn't tax evasion, but the point is more to create parallel institutions or non-coercive alternative institutions that can basically sustain themselves? Yeah. Okay, all right, fair enough. Do you think agorism says anything about consciously engaging within the white market? So for instance, whether it's through building co-ops or choosing to patronize mom and pop shops over corporations, does agorism or does Konkin have anything to say about how one might consciously engage within the white market? You know, like I said, he tried to be independent and all that and and not be in the, the main white market. The fact that he wasn't able to achieve enough prosperity to really do the things he wanted to, like, you know, be a a bigger publisher, I think it means that we got to be realistic about the context we're in right now. And I've had to face this myself. I may not be able to completely support myself in the counter economy just right off the bat. And a lot of people try to do that. It's really hard. So we have to envision a sort of a transition plan or an intermediate plan. And you might have to work a day job, you know, work a temp job, you know, while you're building up your ideal counter-economic enterprise. We can't just, you know, let ourselves starve. So a few years back, we we, we came up with what we called incremental agorism or or we were talking about overlay agorism, where you sort of live in two different worlds at the same time, you know. And so just like the underground economy that there was in the Soviet Union, you know, the people weren't allowed to be free. So they had what they call the Nalevo economy. I know you've heard about this. It gives you a a laboratory example of kind of the most extreme case of having no freedom because everything was owned by the state and all the jobs were provided by the state. You're essentially sort of in some slavery to the state because you've got to survive. Everybody's working for the state. So maybe the job that you get assigned is some clerk in some some bureau and you may be in charge of issuing the permits that allow somebody to leave the city limits to visit their grandmother, you know? So you're at the same time, the oppressed and the oppressor, (laughs) you know, all under the thumb of the party, of course. So I asked this, this Russian guy who came here one time about the Nalevo economy. And he says, oh, it's like this. He says, maybe you work for the city road repair crew and you go to, to the, you know, the road repair garage, you know, and you, you get issued a truck to go out and repair some potholes in the roads. And he says, but what you do in reality is you take the truck and drive it out to the city limits and sell the gas out of it to individuals with cars. <laughs> And, you know, right. It's like in the chaos of a planned economy, the market bled through because it had to in order to be able to discover wants and needs of people. Right. For anybody to get anything done, they had to cheat the planned controlled economy. And in, in, in the end, you got to look at it like, well, that's not really cheating it. It's like if you had the freedom, that's what you might do anyway. You might buy gas and sell it to somebody else. Are there any examples of counter economics making social change? Well, yeah. So let's take prohibition in the U.S. You know, there were some people that thought, oh, it's really important that people not drink. I mean, there was even some stuff, some backstory to that. But so they made it illegal to to sell alcohol, to buy and sell alcohol. So then 
what happened was there was a, a counter-economic market that formed. You know, people would, they'd make their moonshine, you know, they'd have a still. And then there were people that would bring liquor and beer across from Canada. And there's, you know, famous stories about people, you know, having boats across the Great Lakes, you know, to make sure they could bring booze to uh, Detroit and to Cleveland and places like that on the Great Lakes. You know, and they would they keep trying to arrest people and put them on trial. And this went on for years. But everybody still liked to drink beer and alcohol. And the way our court system works is the people on the jury are, you know, supposed to be your peers. They're people like you that also like to drink beer and alcohol. So after a while, the juries wouldn't convict anymore. So the government would be spending all this money to take somebody to trial. And if they couldn't convict them, well, then after a while, what good was doing this? So I'm not saying like having people drink more is is like a great social change or anything. It's just that people fought back in their own little way just to go ahead and get what they want in the marketplace. The bootleggers and, and whatnot, they really served to prove to the state they didn't have enough power to stop people from having a cold beer. <laughs> you know, the the market spoke louder than the state ever could. I, I just thought of a couple of other things. Konkin always brought up this one. In the U.S., to save energy, you know, they figured they'd lower the speed limit on the, all the highways to 55. And so what happens was when, when they built the interstate highway system, the speed limit was pretty much 70 everywhere. And they had these specifications for the highways that made them really flat and not very steep. And the corners weren't very sharp, you know. And so you could really actually go 100 comfortably as long as your car could power you that that speed. So anyway... Truckers, for example, you know, made their living by getting products to market quicker. So truckers would go faster than the speed limit, but they would get CB radios and they'd communicate with other truckers. And that was sort of like a, a pre-internet ways. You know, everybody kept tabs on where the where the Smokies were. The Smokies would be the state police, you know, with their hats. So the whole CB craze of, the th- I think it was the 70s, was based on people being able to operate in the economy the, the way that really worked for them. They had these highways that were completely safe to go 80, 90 miles an hour on. And the cops were trying to essentially cost you money by making it so you couldn't get products to market faster. You know, nobody planned or designed that response, but there there are things that people will try and utilize technologies to, you know, succeed in spite of the state. Let's uh, move on a little bit to something that I think we probably have to address while talking about Konkin. I mean, it's it's difficult to find major thinkers who didn't have butt on their hands in one way or another. And while I think it's possible to get interesting insights from imperfect people, it's also probably important to acknowledge and be honest about some of their downfalls. For instance, Proudhon was said to have held some pretty nasty views regarding Jewish people and women. And I was just wondering, are there any criticisms of Konkin or his work that you think are legitimate and should be addressed? I heard uh, you mention somebody criticizing him for being a fan of the South and having a Confederate flag in his office or whatever. And I've been at two of his apartments, and I never saw a Confederate flag on the wall. I think I've heard people say before that he was a Holocaust denier. What do you make of that? I never heard you know any Holocaust denial. I don't think he was you know a detailed historian about World War II things, but 
essentially that World War II was this, he called it an orgy of uh, statism, where they were essentially organizing the whole economy for the fat cats. The big corporations like General Motors would get contracts to build all the army tanks and, you know, they were guaranteed a profit and they would build the planes and they would build the bombs and, you know, they had to organize the economy to wartime measures and they drafted people. And those were the crimes that we knew about by our own government in our own country. And those were, I guess, the kind of things we always talked about. Yeah, I just, I want to be specific about what Konkin believed about those things. And if you don't know, that's okay. I've read that he was not a Holocaust denier. It would, it would disappoint me if that were the case with him. I, somebody, I think it was John Bush pointed out to me a post on a Facebook thread where somebody accused uh, Konkin of being a rabid anti-Semite. And John contacted me. He says, is that true? And I said, no. I says, you want me to read you a list of his friends? Murray Rothbard, Ken Kalsheim, J. Neil Shulman. It's like almost everybody he knew was Jewish. <laughs> I think I know one non-Jewish friend of his. He was not an anti-Semite. I hear you. Let's move on a little bit. You ended up spending some time behind bars for your activism. What happened with that? Well, back in the 70s, the early 70s, I just graduated college. There was a big, um, well, they call it the tax rebellion movement. And so a lot of the conservatives got into this because they were arguing the constitutional uh, aspect about the tax laws and that the uh, filing a 1040 form, you know, violated your Fifth Amendment rights because you had the right to remain silent. And if you said anything wrong on the 1040 form, you could go to jail, you know, be accused of a crime. So anyway, I went to uh, a couple of seminars and I followed, essentially, I followed their advice and got in trouble over that. I got arrested at work one day. You know, it was the day before I was going to move to New Hampshire. I lived in Pennsylvania at the time and I got pulled up before a magistrate and I had to pay bail and all that. And I had a trial and I, I used this um, constitutional lawyer, he called himself, that I had met, at, you know, who had a table, an exhibit table at I think it was the same Libertarian Party convention where I met Sam Konkin uh, the second time. And so I followed his approach and only the, you know, the court wouldn't let him represent me. So I ended up getting convicted of a, a relatively minor tax crime. But I think it was because I was causing some other grief to uh, officials in the town I lived in because I, I had sued the, uh, the constables, the police, the a local magistrate. I had sued like seven or eight people in a federal civil rights suit. Why? It's a long story. You don't have enough time tonight for that. <laughs> it was okay. the right to travel and how they treated me uh, – is this yeah. some sovereign citizen shit? No, that, that concept probably didn't even exist. Right to travel is not the same as sovereign citizen. Okay. So anyway, because I, I think because I had sued these other guys, they said, I think they said behind the scenes, let's investigate this guy, see if we can get him on anything. And so they did. And I actually ended up going to a federal prison for actually a relatively short sentence. And I was out. But it's like, it's kind of, it's kind of a difficult experience. <laughs> Yeah. I think Robert Anton Wilson is the one who said, never trust anyone who hasn't spent any time in jail. So, <laughs> But I think you told me that Konkin sent you a letter while you were behind bars. Do you remember what he wrote to you? Oh, I, I think it was pretty funny. I don't remember the whole thing. I, I kind of packed away some stuff when I moved recently, but uh, I think he called me Comrade Jack or something like that. <laughs> and of course, they read your incoming mail. I thought know. he called you Agent Jack. Oh, yeah, maybe that's what it was. Agent Jack. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. I'll find that letter again. Okay, so changing gears a little bit. What is the Alt Expo? 
So one of the things Konkin and I were talking about, and I think this is about 2003 timeframe, was we started using this term alternatives. And between the two of us, we were, we were working on this essentially by instant messenger. We were trying to think of how to create a portal website for the counter economy and how that, would, how that would be done. But neither one of us had the web skills. But we essentially said uh, we want to help facilitate people finding alternatives to the state-controlled systems so that you know, they could choose to patronize uh, more freedom-based you know, ethical systems. And uh, <clears throat> unfortunately, like one day I just didn't hear from him again. And I only found out like a year and a half after that that he had passed away. And, uh, you know, I may have been one of the last people that talked to him. It wasn't talk talk, but it was uh, instant messenger. So 2006 timeframe, the Free State Project, a lot of people were planning to move to New Hampshire. So we started talking about, you know, alternative energy, alternative this, alternative that. Again, this was on a Yahoo group at that time, and we came up with the idea of having an alternatives expo. And 2007, there was going to be the first Liberty Forum. The Free State Project was going to do an event in a hotel in Concord, New Hampshire. So I got I, I volunteered to help organize that. And what I found was as we went around the room, you know, selecting topics to talk about at the Liberty Forum, it was like all politics. Everybody wanted to talk about one or another variety of politics. So finally, when it got around to me, I said, uh, well, what about alternatives? And she says, what do you mean, alternative energy? And I said, well, alternatives to everything. And so I got this little one-hour time segment. And without going through all the rigmarole, I ended up deciding, myself and a few other people, to do something more. And we actually organized uh, one-hour talks, like eight or nine per day. Must have had 20 different talks. And sometimes, you know, it would just be one of our fellows but anyway, so the Alt Expo, the real goal was to, you know, find all the different alternatives, talk about them, learn about them, promote them. And so since that day, we've had Alt Expo sessions at pretty much every uh, Free State Project e- event since then. I, ha- I had to skip one because of health one time. Oh, and we did one in Austin. We did one in San Diego at Libertopia. We did three in Vermont. I think we did one in uh, eastern Pennsylvania, you know, in conjunction with another event. So coming up in like two weeks, we're going to have Alt Expo number 30. And there's actually going to be an Alt Expo number 31 right after that. My idea is to is to bring it outside just libertarian events and bring it to the community and, you know, teach people in the community about, oh, uh, you know, Bitcoin, um, mesh networking, you know, alternative energy and, and have all these different presenters kind of in every town in the country. I don't want to run them all. I want to encourage other people to do alternatives expositions or alt expos. And essentially, we're, we'll work on creating all the better stuff that will essentially leave the state-sanctioned institutions behind because they're so clunky. Have you ever heard of permaculture? Yeah. That there were some people that did a panel on permaculture, and they were like, permaculture is the revolution. You know, they were, they were into it like politically, biologically, you know, botanically. They were just all about permaculture, and it was that was so awesome. I've also been interested in tiny homes. We've had tiny homes talks for like 10 years now. We've had several different money systems proposed, silver-based systems, uh, kind of social credit-based kind of systems. Of course, now the cryptocurrencies. There's going to be a new cryptocurrency presented in a couple of weeks uh, that kind of nobody's heard of yet. There was a guy from New Jersey, from ALL New Jersey, uh, Darian. He used to give history talks, and he'd give like the history of Russian anarchism. That was fascinating. All kinds of things I didn't know about it. 
Darian Wood. Darian Warden. W-O-R-D-E-N. Speaking of alternatives to the status quo, can you talk a little bit about the food cooperative that you and some friends have started? Yeah. So when you talk about alternatives, like people turn to creating some kind of alternative when the mainstream system, you know, just doesn't suit their needs or or sucks in some way. So the whole natural foods movement was, you know, to me, I saw it back when I was in Austin in the 70s. It was essentially a bunch of hippies, you know, trying to figure out how to get natural foods. And most people didn't know or care about what ingredients were in their foods. But these were people that were actually more aware and they learned more and everything. So the natural foods movement is like one of those alternatives. And so because of their their history, a lot of people would form local cooperatives and so now the big natural foods distributors, they still kind of encourage local cooperatives. So what a cooperative is, is a business that's run by the members. You know, it's kind of like a credit union, but only with food. So we've made deals with two different catalog suppliers. One of them makes a delivery to us by truck and the other one ships us stuff in. You know, Frontier Foods is one of the big ones in the company country. And they're all the way in Iowa. But, you know, you can buy natural ingredients, spices, teas, uh, herbs, all kinds of things. And so they're a big supplier to natural food stores. Well, we can buy from them at wholesale. And what what you essentially do is you form a buying club. You get enough people together to make a big enough purchase that it, it makes sense to them to supply you at a wholesale price. So we had gone out before to a few local farms, too, but I don't think we were quite big enough to pull that off. And we actually have what we call a community market day. Once a month, we encourage people that, that have a product or a craft or something to come in and sell it. And then also everybody can pick up their co-op order. Like right now, I buy all my coffee from another libertarian in town who roasts it in this, this backyard coffee roasting rig that uh, he got plans for online. But he's, he's like a coffee fanatic. And so it's like awesome coffee. And I get to buy it from a friend, you know, kind of support a a counter-economic trader. And, uh, oh, there's there's two different counter-economic soap makers. And uh, I buy kombucha from another guy. And uh, he buys some really interesting granola, you know, in mass quantities. So I buy that from him. I think it's important to for everybody to try to have some kind of product that they can buy and sell within the community like that. And, and I'm going to see if there's a food component or product that I can make. I'm thinking of like yogurt, you know, because I've made yogurt before and it's super easy to make. So all I really would need to do is figure out how to package it well and store it and bring it in a little cooler to market day. And maybe I can barter yogurt for kombucha or for coffee. And there's a guy over in Vermont and he comes to a lot of our events. He does a co-op brewery where it's it's partly a social get together and it's kind of an experiment in, you know, trying to figure out the governance structure for an organization. And also you get a benefit at the end of, a, you know, whatever the time period is, you get some beer out of the deal. It's kind of like a return to kind of some things that are done the, like the old days, you know. If you get too much into this, I don't know, this atomized and divided up society and you get a corporate job and you go shop at the corporate stores and then you go home and you never talk to your neighbors or buy buy or sell anything from your neighbors or whatever. I think that's a problem. You know, a lot of people acknowledge there seems to be something wrong with how we live in neighborhoods and things like that. How do we build an agorist culture? Yeah, I've thought about this. You know, we actually do have some mutual aid going on here. 
like right now with the Free State Project, a lot of people have moved to our small state, you know, probably two or 3,000 people, a lot of people. And, you know, there's this traditional thing people do, like if people move to New Hampshire, you know, they, they come here with their rented U-Haul truck and we'll have a party and help them unload their U-Haul. So once they get to their new house and they're ready to go, there'll be a crew of people that'll, that'll help unload a whole U-Haul truck in an hour and a half, you know. And then there's a tradition of pizza and beer afterwards. And so that's one of the little things that that's a that's a cultural thing now. We're we're trying to be all a big happy family in a way. But then of course people argue and fight on Facebook. I think we need to learn actually some important things about getting along t- together when we do disagree on something. And this is this gets to the Ayn Rand versus Sam Konkin question of being open to, to other people. So we need to extend our non-aggression to people on Facebook, you know. Then I almost think that we need some cultural things that we share, like, you know, music and, uh, and maybe some agorist songs, just to experience it, to, to feel good about being around each other and end up being more supportive of each other. Like one of the things I'm trying to do is uh, I'm creating a, a movie night called the Freedom Film Festival. We try to have either an entertainment movie or a documentary movie. You know, documentaries usually come up on some topic that's in the news. And it's, you know, partly to build the camaraderie, you know, because we talk about the movies and, you know, share food and things like that. Just a mile up the road from me, there's a there's a couple that bought this geodesic dome house and they had a Memorial Day essentially all weekend long. You know, come help help us repair the roof on the dome and have barbecue and beer and kids games and all that. So there's these little pockets of good vibes we're creating that that make it, you know, a more desirable culture. The agorist culture is, is going to be where you want to be because it feels good, you know. All right. So towards the end of these interviews, I like to do a lightning round where I name a thinker or an idea and my guests respond to each item in one minute or less. Are you down? Sure. The Black Panther Party. A bunch of guys trying to protect their fellows in their neighborhood who got persecuted by the FBI and the FBI would kill them or would infiltrate their meetings, try to pit them against each other. Probably, you know, basically good organization. Carl Hess joined the Black Panther Party, even though he was white, because he really believed in what they stood for. I don't have firsthand knowledge. Robert Lefebvre. Uh, He's a great guy. I mean, I met him once. The way a lot of people thought of him was like he was a West Coaster and the West Coasters were like too laid back for their own good. And they're, you know, like easy come, easy go. Whereas the East Coast people were like intense intellectuals and, and, you know, did more research. and. What I didn't know much about was like kind of right before I got involved in the movement, he had already been doing this thing. I think it was first it was called the Freedom School and later on it was called Ramparts College. And there was some kind of coursework that you could do to learn learn libertarianism. He was an interesting, charming guy, though, that's for sure. I, I read recently when it comes to like West Coast versus East Coast politics is like West Coast politics is like if political disagreement occurs, then that's a sign of a bad party. Whereas like East Coast politics is like if you have a party and there isn't a political disagreement, then it's not a good party. <laughs> All right. Pacifism. 
Well, I'm with Konkin on this one. I actually was refreshing myself in the New Libertarian Manifesto, and Konkin said something I thought was just kind of a funny dig. And he was talking about what people would do to defend other people. And he said, by all means, if a pacifist didn't believe in, you know, using guns for self-protection, trust us, we wouldn't, <laughs> we wouldn't rise to their defense <laughs> or something like that. Kangen was, uh, he said, yeah, you got a right to defend yourself. You have a right to defend your, defend your neighbors or anybody else that's under attack. And, you know, it'd probably be the right thing to do. The legend of Anarcho Claus. Anarcho Claus. Oh, my God. Konkin wrote that. I'll have to go back and reread it again. Um, yeah, he wrote a bunch of funny stuff. It's the third book of the canon. <laughs> I think I read it in 1974 and forget it. It was probably forgettable. I don't know. All right. I have a patron question. How can I get a cappuccino in your envisioned political utopia? <laughs> well, you can't get cappuccinos from political people. You have to get them from economic people. Oh, damn. Everybody's got better and better coffee makers these days, probably from being yuppies that make their money working for the big corporate structure. But, you know, when you go to uh, Porkfest, there's all kinds of vendors there. Each one has a campsite and they're set up and they're selling barbecue and this one's selling cappuccino. Oh, there it is. This one's selling hot dogs and this one's selling root beer. But where do you get the beans from? Where do you get the milk from? <laughs> oh, details, details. <laughs> There is a way... Um, I'm going to let you say, let the market decide. Explain uh, to me how the market might decide. Yeah, I hate it when people say that the market will provide because <laughs> there's, there's no entity as the market. That's a collection of people. The people will provide. So it turns out you can actually grow coffee beans up here in colder climates, but you just have to build a greenhouse around the plant. <laughs> And it has to be like 10 feet tall or something like that. But we have a guy that's going to give a talk on that at the Alt Expo, Ivan. And he's the guy that roasts the coffee beans in his backyard. So he's going to try to see if he can get together with somebody that's got a property and build one of these coffee bean greenhouses and actually grow New Hampshire coffee. Now, where do you get the cream for your coffee? There's a farm, uh, I think it's about three miles from me, called Isley's. Islesley's. It's kind of a funny spelling. And you can get, you know, all natural ice cream from them in the summer, but I can buy uh, raw milk and cream from them. What else do you need? You need sugar. Okay, so uh, I don't know how. Well, I don't use sugar in mine, so no problem. <laughs> Are there no vegan milk options in your political utopia, Jack? At Porkfest, there's a farm up here called Bardo Farm, and they have pigs, and they, they always have a big pig roast, and so not everybody wants to have the pig roast, so at the Alt Expo tent, we're going to have a vegan fest at the same time. So we do have options in our, our envisioned economic utopia. All right. Well, where can folks go to learn more about agorism? There's agorism.info, of course, and that's a site that's it's not maintained that well, but it's got a bunch of links, and it's got the New Libertarian Manifesto in several languages. You really got to read the book, New Libertarian Manifesto. And I think there's a couple of links to online copies from agorism.info, but you could just do a search, too. You can actually buy the book from CoPubCo, and that's Victor Coleman, his publishing company. And you go to copubco.com. Oh, of course, yeah, there's another book. This was published after Konkin's death called uh, An Agorist Primer, or AAP. And that was supposed to be a book even your mother could understand. 
So that's actually pretty good. I was just talking to a guy the other day, said he preferred that uh, better. Like I said, I've been trying to get people to read these books for like 30 years. No, maybe 40 now. Uh, I'm going to be doing a five-day-long, well, one-hour-each-day workshop at the Alt Expo event this summer, like two weeks from now. You know, I have one hour on each chapter. I'm just trying to get people to read the damn thing because it's it's a different approach. It kind of changes your whole outlook on politics and the economy and, you know, what we can do to survive and thrive in the future. Uh, yeah, one of the other places you can go is to sek3.net. Uh, Sam Konkin, he, he used Samuel Edward Konkin III, or SEK3 for short. But anyway, sek3.net is uh, a guy is trying to collect all of Konkin's works and scan them in and put them online there and kind of catalog them. And he'll have articles that come before Konkin wrote the New Libertarian Manifesto. So you can kind of see some of the evolution of thought. Actually, that guy that does that site, he's asked me to rummage through my boxes of old Konkin material and see if I have anything that he doesn't have yet and scan it in and send it to him. You know, the one thing you can do is go to YouTube and do a search on Samuel Edward Konkin III or Sam Konkin or Agorism. One I like, it's a debate between him and Robert Poole. And Robert Poole was the head of the Reason Foundation at the time. And so Poole is kind of like an incrementalist and a conservative reformer, and Konkin was debating against that position. Where should folks go to learn more about Alt-Expo? We just decided to do a, a website again. We figured it's time to have a place at least where you can see any videos that we have of previous talks. So altexpo.net. We just started it a matter of a couple of weeks ago, and all we've uploaded to it is a couple of blog posts and a couple of videos so far, but we will try to get our stuff together and throughout the summer keep uploading videos and other content to it. I really sort of want to maybe create a, a chat space that's accessible from there so we can have more agorist uh, discussion and chat. And I'll talk to the guy that does the sek3.net site to see if maybe that could be a place for either agorist chat. I'm not sure which is the best location for it. But the Alt Expo, I mean, I'm totally definitely interested in anything agorist, agorism, any new theories, new extensions of, you know, the open new libertarianism. Before I let you go, I got to ask you one last question. You've done activism for so many years. How do people avoid burnout? Well, okay, so that is tough. I think when you first start out, again, you know, like some of this political activism is it's addictive. You know, the excitement of it, it creates adrenaline. And, you know, I have burned out a few times. Um, and, you know, going to prison, for example, that makes your life difficult for a while. And I think you have to look at the steady long term. And when you look at the, the way some things are going in society, you know, with, with war and inflation and rampant regulation and, and the horrible police abuses and everything, each time you kind of come back into it and say, yeah, I have to do something. I can't do everything. I think that's the thing you have to realize is, you know, each one of us probably only has a small amount of change that we can do. And it's good and right for us to do the small amount that we can. We're not going to change the whole world, each one of us, you know. But I don't know, when you when you talk to another human being and you have an effect on them and you get them to see that there is maybe a path towards a more just and safe and peaceful society, it just feels good when you've got like one more person on board 
or we're kind of in an occupied land and we're just sort of looking for the the other denizens of this little world we're trying to band together and survive and get to the other side of this I kind of think sometimes of Terminator, like the machines are <laughs> trying to kill us and, and we're all fighting back. And I, I hate to have that siege mentality, but sometimes you got to shake your head at, at some of the stuff the establishment does do. And, you know, one of the things we just have to do is make sure we're not killed in the crossfire of some of these some of these crazy things that are going on in the world. One of the things Konkin said is like everybody's in the counter economy to a certain extent. You know, the people that, that are cooperating together by flashing their lights to tell you that there's a cop car ahead. That's that's an ally, you know, or you go to a, a flea market and you get a, you know, some product from somebody and you know that they're not in the regulated and taxed economy. You know, again, there's another economic ally. You have a yard sale, you know, and you're not going to put on your tax return that you sold a couple of hundred bucks of stuff at a yard sale. I know that sounds like small potatoes, but as we build and build the, the our number and the number of skills and talents and products and services that we bring to a, the free market, the more and more we'll be able to, first of all, survive the state and at some point, you know, outcompete the state for helping to build and, and manage a free society. Is there anything that I forgot to ask you about that you'd like to go over before we end the interview? Or is there any advice that you'd like to give others? You know, that's a tough one. I just would say always keep developing more understanding of the world. There's probably not enough good agorist literature, but also keep developing more skills and more products and services you can offer to other people. And so you got to have patience with people. There's also people you just have to walk away from to stay at peace with yourself. You don't have to argue with everybody that you disagree with. Sometimes you can you can still respect them as another person. You know that they wouldn't really hurt you. Most people wouldn't. You might have a different opinion about something, but you can still be allies. But yeah, knowledge, skills, keep on keeping on out there, even if, you know, some sometimes things do look bleak. Yeah that well thanks so much for your time jack is there a place that people can contact you if they want to interact with you more or learn about alt expo or anything else you know i tell you what i'll do is i'll add a uh, an email link on the altexpo.net page thanks so much jack for doing this i really appreciate your time i've, I've enjoyed my conversation with you Yeah, thank you, Joel, for having me. I I always enjoy talking to you, too. All right, Jack. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Okay. Goodbye. There it is, folks. I hope everyone enjoyed my conversation with Jack Shemick. If you've been paying attention to past episodes, you may have noticed that this one was a little different in that it focused mostly on a single topic. Whether you enjoyed this format or not, please feel free to shoot me an email to let me know your thoughts. You can find our contact information as well as all of our content at nonservium.media. Also, Jack and I briefly touched on it, but it's possible that Konkin, like a lot of our sacred anarchist gods, was not in fact a saint. I personally do not know the extent to which he held any reactionary beliefs, and to this point, I've only heard rumors about it. Regardless, this conversation was not an attempt to clear his name, only to highlight the interesting and hopefully positive insights he developed and contributed to the conversation of libertarian and anarchist tactics for liberation. 
Anyways, if you like the Non-Servium podcast and would like to see it continue, consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash Media. And if you aren't able to help financially, please help us reach a larger audience by liking, sharing, and subscribing. Thank you all so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you soon.